the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's the Tuesday edition. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, questions about the Bible, church stuff, anything going on in your life. Uh, I'll take a shot at it. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And remember, as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and everything else will be hands-free. Don't have any announcements or anything to make, so I'll get right to the questions. Our first one comes from our email inbox from Priscilla. She says, Dear Pastor Ron, I was reading 2 Peter 1.19 and was wondering about the phrase, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Is he speaking of Jesus' first coming as a baby, his second coming, or that in our hearts we will understand the word about Jesus? Priscilla, I'm sorry, I had to take an almost sneeze break. <laughs> um, Priscilla, um, it, it's a beautiful, I'm going to read it and then I'll kind of go back and, and work up to it. Uh, Peter writes this, we also have the word of the prophets um, confirmed beyond doubt. I don't know what translation this is that you're using, Priscilla. Uh, let me read it out of, out of uh, my translation. Uh, He says, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. Now, here's what we have to do. And and, and really in a passage like this, you've got to take the whole thing in context. Peter has been pointing to the most powerful experience in his life, the glorious scene at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, It is an event uh, that John also notes in his epistle. And it was an event that changed the rest of their lives. Um, two giants of our faith, uh, these apostles who were with Jesus, never could forget that moment of time. Um, but Peter's point here, then, he wants you to experience that as well. But the experiences of life are not as dependable as the Word of God is. We have the Word of the prophets made more certain. Sure, the prophets spoke about these moments that Peter and John experienced, but he's saying, no, no, we have it more certain because we've seen it with our own eyes. And you and I, who haven't seen the Mount of Transfiguration with our own eyes, Priscilla, we have to know that what the Bible says is absolutely true. It's a a, a, a choice that we have to make as Christians early in our walk with uh, uh, with the Lord. There's lots of people who claim visitation. Jesus says no. I mean, I'm sorry, Peter says no. I've seen it with my own eyes. And you and I, we can depend on the word of God. And when he continues, uh, he says, and you, depending on the word of God, and you will do well to pay attention to it, to the word. 
as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So that day is coming. Uh, until then, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in Son. So what Jesus has to say, what the Word of God has to say, that's what we need to pay attention to until that moment when, like Peter, we're, we're walking no longer by faith but by sight. You know, the Bible, in the dark world that we live in, Priscilla, shines. Um, as dark as the world is, they've never been able to extinguish the light of the Word of God. Uh, with the progress that we've made in communication in the modern age, uh, the gospel today travels like at no other time in history. In a single radio program like this one, uh, a pastor, teacher can speak to more people than the apostles did in their entire lifetime. I'm speaking to tens of thousands of people every day. Uh, and, and that's just this program, the live program, not even counting the the program, uh, the teaching programs that are on everywhere. And when you combine the Internet, that light is shining in this world. And no matter how the world or the devil tries to attack the Bible, it still shines. So that's what he's talking about. As we await Jesus' second coming, um, one day we'll be walking by, by sight instead of by faith. Until then, we have to walk by faith instead of by sight. Thank you, Priscilla. Good question. I appreciate you tuning in to the program. Let's go to Jacob on line one from San Antonio. Jacob, thanks for calling early. You're on the air. Yeah, how you doing, Pastor Ron? Jacob, I'm doing really well. Thank you. I'm doing well. I can hear you. Yeah, good, brother. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for doing this day in and day out. I know that uh, you're a busy man, and I pray that God uses you for his wisdom through his word. So thank you for doing this. Um, thank you. My question, my question is regarding tithing and giving. And about a year ago, I started giving off my net, uh, or uh, gross, my gross income. And uh-huh. I felt led, felt led to, you know, give off the top. And um, my wife has been very... She's always concerned about tithing and as far as like trusting God with that amount of money. And we recently had to make a couple purchases with vehicles and it got finally got tied again. And I wonder if you have any personal examples of when you've been there and, you know, in faith gave that amount and you saw God work through it. And um, if you could give examples also biblically for giving off of your uh, gross income. And I will take it off the air. I'll take it off the phone. Okay. Okay, Jacob, thank you. Thank you for that. And Jacob, you're probably going to get a lot more than you asked for here with this question. Um, uh, This is something that's really important. Romans chapter 12 says that, that in view of what God has done, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. I think sometimes, Jacob, we we look at our finances and we do the addition and and the subtraction, and uh, we think, well, I can't afford to do this, I can't afford to do this. This is something that we need to understand. Every dollar we have belongs to the Lord. Every gift that God has given us comes from Him, thus they belong to Him. Our time, our talent, and our treasure, it all belongs to the Lord. And the Christian in the uh, 21st century uh, the Christian says, okay, Lord, it's all yours. What do you want me to do with it? That's the only way that we're really good stewards. The idea of tithing or giving a tenth, whether it's the net or the gross, Paul only talks about on your increase. Um, but 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 remember, it all belongs to him, not, not 10%. Lord, this is the money I've got. And then if you do it this way, it doesn't matter whether it's net or gross. Just, Lord, this is the money I've got. And I'm, I'm going to use round numbers to make it easy. Um, let's say that you got a thousand dollars. That's your that's your your combined paycheck. And you say, okay, Lord, you blessed us with a thousand dollars. You've asked us to be stewards of this thousand. So how do you want us to use it? And in the process of that, um, the Lord will speak to your heart. Now, again, from a New Testament perspective, we're to give not under compulsion. We're not to give reluctantly. We're to give cheerfully, and it's literally even more than that. It's hilariously, the Greek word is. And so um, I, I just don't think God wants us quibbling over whether it's the gross or the net, Jacob. 
I think what God wants us to do is get to the point where we say, Lord, you've always provided for me. I'm going to trust you with everything. You've given me the ability to make money. I thank you for my job, Lord, and I want to be a good steward of my job as well. So I'll represent you there. But when I get paid, Lord, it's your getting paid. So what do you want to do? Now, Jacob, he's going to let you keep most of it. But he wants you to be willing to to do as he directs you to do. And the only way we can do that is to realize that none of it really belongs to us. And I can promise you, Jacob, that will set you free. It will absolutely set you free. And then we've got this spiritual principle. And I'm going to be careful as I say this because there's so much bad teaching that people always jump to the wrong conclusion. The spiritual principle is that you can't outgive God. We reap what we sow if we sow stingily. We will reap nothing if we sow generously. Proverbs eleven twenty five says a generous man himself will be blessed by God. And over and over and over, that's going to happen. But as long as you're counting your dollars and cents, and see what you can understand then is, I, I think you said you bought some cars or had some car problems or something. But, but Jacob, God will be there to bless you and help you with that. Now, remember, the motive has to be giving to God because it's his and because we're grateful. But when we give to God, when we offer God everything that's ours, remember the parable of the talents. One who buried his talent and the other one who who who, who went to work with his and, and, and the other two, actually, they reproduced the number of talents God gave them and they were all blessed accordingly. So that's the principle when it comes to giving in the New Testament. And whenever we are are figuring 10% or whatever it is, uh, we're discounting what God wants to do. And here's the thing I can promise you and your wife, Jacob, that when God can trust you with his money, he will bless abundantly. He will bless abundantly. Think about how ridiculous it is. To, and again, this isn't personal. I'm just talking generally now, Jacob. How ridiculous it is to say, okay, God, um, I've got $10. I'm going to give you one. I'm going to keep nine. I mean, God emptied the bank of heaven for us. He sent not only everything he had, the best that he had. Why would we do that? So if you're going to walk by faith, you've got to trust him. When you're walking by faith, God is pleased, Hebrews eleven six, And God's free to bless you abundantly. And if you wanted specific examples, I cannot tell you how many times over the years that at the Lord's direction, as a church, we've given money that we didn't have to follow God's call in our lives. And God is always abundantly blessed. And... Uh, you know, he never gives us everything that we're ever going to need. He, he gives it to us as we need it. But I promise you, Jacob, the one thing you and your wife want to be doing is walking together in agreement that everything you have belongs to God. That will make you pray before you spend money, before you make large purchases. You'll get God's direction. It'll help you stay out of debt. You'll get God's direction when difficulties come, and we know they always do. So what you do is simply say, okay, Lord, all of this is yours. So there's just too many examples of, of God showing off at just the right time. And um, we've done it. You know, uh, um, when we first got here, Jacob, we had no money at all, Paul and I. Uh, we, we came over like $2,800, and um, that money was long gone. Um, we had a car. We had to sell a car uh, just to keep going, just to keep the church going. God bless us with a better car, a more dependable car. Then the time came we had to sell that. And again, just to keep the church going. And we did. And God was always there to meet us. And he was teaching us a lesson that, that he wants all of us to learn with our giving, and that's that we can trust him. So yeah, you keep giving but please, 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 you and your wife, sit down and agree together. And if you will test God on this, I promise you, you will never, ever regret it. Now, I want to be clear one more time, and then I'll finish this, Jacob. 
This doesn't mean that we give to God to get something from God. That's just horrible, evil teaching. We give to God because he has first given everything to us. And then God just does what he does and God can't help but to bless. So you've got to pay attention to your motives and your heart. So you give God. If you're in debt, now I'll say this. I said that's the last thing, but I don't have anybody waiting on the line right now. Um, we've told people in our church throughout the years to stop giving because they were so far in debt. They were treating God like a banking machine. Well, I'm going to give, I'm going to give, so God will, God will bless us. No, I said, you get out of debt. Let's work hard together. You get out of debt. See what God will do. And God has done miraculous things, Jacob, over and over and over to get people out of debt. I'll give you one quick story. We had a, a, a man and woman in the church with a sort of a faith church background, and they were giving because they felt like, well, if I don't give to God, I'm cheating God, I'm stealing God. First of all, God doesn't need anything we have. He just wants us to trust him. But they were in debt, and over the course of time, I noticed that they were giving a lot, and and I, I just talked to him, and, well, you know, we want to give to God so God will bless us, and we don't want to steal from God. I said, tell, tell me, uh, what's your debt situation like? And they, they were really in debt. I said, how about we get you out of debt first so you're available to God? And they actually won a car, a brand-new car, that they were able to sell and pay off all their debt. That's the way God works, Jacob. Doesn't work with math, but sure works with Jesus. Thank you for the call, Jacob. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's an anonymous question. Um, He or she says, I have a friend who is marrying a same-sex partner. I've always told her, that sex outside of marriage is wrong. How do I approach her once she gets married? Anonymous, a couple of things. First, um, God also gets to define not only the use of our sexuality, but he gets to define marriage. God created marriage. Adam and Eve, that's the pattern. And God, it's not good for men to be alone. He woke up and there she was. And they were one flesh. So God defines marriage, and marriage is between a man and a woman. Not between two men, not between two women, not between one man and two women or any other combination of sorts. It's one man and one woman forever. So she doesn't get to use that, or he, whoever it is, doesn't get to use that kind of, well, now that we're married, it's okay, right? No, it's not okay. Your friend needs to get saved. And what you tell her is, God has a better plan for her. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ with her. Don't talk so much about what she's doing, or he's doing, but instead, tell him about Jesus. Proclaim the gospel. If they ask you the question, well, does that mean I can't do this? Yes, it means you can't do that, but, but, but let Jesus do that work in your heart. Too often we Christians are so busy with what the world wouldn't consider good news at all. I can tell you all the things you've got to stop doing. All we've got to do is declare the gospel and let the Holy Spirit have his way. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that they're going to get saved. But remember, that's our power. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul said, because it is the power of God unto salvation. So our job is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yeah, they don't get off the hook because they marry a same-sex partner and suddenly it's okay. They're still in rebellion against God and as a friend, we want them to be right with God. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's one from Lydia. She asks, can you Speak about conflict resolution in a marriage, please. Um, Yeah, I can, and I will, Lydia. This ought to be for Christians now. I'm only talking about Christians. Uh, Conflict in a a marriage between believers uh, is always going to be there because we're, we're all humans. But in a marriage, this is important, between Christians, 
the conflict resolution is the easiest thing of all. All we have to do is find out what the Word of God says. Think about that. Just what does the Word say? If a husband and wife, and by the way, Jacob, this would be good for you too, who, who called earlier as you sit down with your wife about these things. Be in the Word together. You can talk about all these things and you can, you can form agreement on these issues like giving and how much to give. Well, the same thing, Lydia, in, in your question, if you disagree about something, it's not a matter of who's right and who's wrong. It's a matter of what does God say? And if you and your husband, Lydia, will agree together to agree with God, then all you have to do whenever there's a resolution or a conflict that needs to be resolved, all you have to do is find out what God's resolution is. That's all you have to do. And it's so simple. And that that way it doesn't become personal. It doesn't give place for anger. We don't raise our voices. We don't say things that we're going to regret later uh, and have to apologize for. Uh, We simply say, okay, I want to do this. You want to do this. Let's see what God wants to do. And every single situation is going to be dealt with either directly and specifically or principally. And all you have to do is agree together to do it. And let's say there's something you say, well, I I don't have an exact um, uh, response from the Lord on this because the Bible doesn't uh, doesn't cover the conflict that we're having. Um, then, Then don't do anything. Just pray about it. You pray for him. Let him pray for you. Pray about what God wants you both to do. And I promise you, God will bring your two hearts together. That's why the word of God, it's supernatural. And it changes our hearts. So we're no longer fighting for what we want. But in a marriage, we're fighting only for what God wants. One other comment, Lydia, about conflict resolution. Conflict needs to be Resolve. You've got to come to a solution. You can't just let it sort of hang out there. You've got to resolve your conflicts and, and, and get it done quickly. Don't give the devil an opportunity to come in and create a wedge between you. But just sit down and resolve it. You know, sometimes there's areas that are sensitive. We don't want to upset somebody. We don't want to upset the peace in the home. So we just kind of let things pass. That's never something Christians should do. You love him, he loves you. You know he wants only the best for you, he knows you want only the best for him. And the only way to find that best is to find out what Jesus wants. And it really is the simplest way to resolve conflicts. Now, the problem with it is that you've got to die to do that because the truth is we still want our own way. And so you've got to get to the place where you can say, Nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. That's the way Jesus taught us to pray. So, Lord, your will, not my will be done. And then if by faith we can understand that God will bless us when we want what he wants, and what he wants is better for us than anything that we can imagine, if we'll get to that place, Lydia, then everything changes And you and your husband can actually talk about things and resolve things. And what a united front that's going to be. Imagine if your conflict is about raising children. The book of Proverbs is the best child-raising book in the history of the world. So go back there and just say, okay, Lord, this is what you say we should do about disciplining kids. And this is just one example. Or maybe earlier it was Jacob's call. What do you do about, well, how about giving? It's simple. Do you... Are you willing to agree with Jesus and do what he said? And it will strengthen your relationship to such a degree that conflict will eventually disappear. And I mean that literally, you know, Paul and I will be celebrating uh, 50 years of marriage this this September. And um, the only way we've survived is, especially since I became a Christian, deciding to do what God wants us to do Always, so we don't even have to go into an argument now. All we got to do if we're a little bit fleshy and trying to hold on to, well, I want this or, or Paula wants this, all we got to do is is just let the Lord sort of speak to our hearts. But wait a minute, you, you already decided you want to do what I want to do and I have a better plan. And God has prov- proven over and over and over, Lydia, 
that his plan is always better than ours. And I can't remember a single time that Paul and I have done what God wants to do. If it wasn't what she wanted, it wasn't what I wanted, where it didn't turn out better than we ever expected. I can think of a lot of times in our years of marriage, especially those before Christ, where we did what we wanted or one person in the marriage got their way and the result wasn't nearly as good as it would have been had we simply just trusted the Lord. So these are just matters of faith. That's a very important question. Just don't let things boil over. You don't ever have to raise your voice. Just open your Bible. Let the Spirit of God working through the Word of God have His way in your hearts. It's always, 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 Lydia, going to be better. Great question. Thank you very, very much. Well, I think we are about at the end of this first half hour. Oh, there's the music. Um, we would love your live calls and questions on the second half of our show today, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. Here's a question from Richard from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. Does God provide unconditional and conditional love for his children and unbelievers? I guess what I'm asking does God love differently for the saved and unsaved people? Richard, practically speaking, the answer to your question is yes. God loves differently for the saved and the unsaved people. However, we have to remember who God is. God is love. And so God has only one measure of love, and that's infinite love. And I think what we've got to do is separate the believer from the unbeliever in the sense that um, um, we know God loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So he loved believers and unbelievers. He loves them all the same with his unconditional love. But he's only able practically to love those who will receive it as believers. An unbeliever puts himself outside or herself outside of being able to benefit from the love of God. So yes, he loves everybody the same, but the differences between unrequited love and love that is given in return. Um, God loved me as much before I got saved in February of 1991 uh, as he does today. But but after I became his, Richard, then for that, that moment I was able to receive his love and let that love of God overwhelm me. And, and literally direct the, the course of the rest of my life. Um, it's hard to be blessed by God's love when you're running away from him, which is what I was doing. And that's what unbelievers do, Richard. So um, God does love unconditionally everybody. But in order for his love to have any benefit or value to us, it has to be received and, of course, to receive his love, we've got to become his. We've got to be born again. So um, th that's the different response to God's love. The love itself is the same. It's just that some people are unable or unwilling to accept his love and benefit from it. Well, those of us who are believers, uh, of course, we benefit from his love in a very practical way, in a very real way, every single day. So... Um, I think the only other thing I would comment on, Richard, is um, believers. When believers are walking away from God, when we're rebelling from God, then we put ourselves in the same position practically as an unbeliever. Um, we could, we're still if we're if we're really saved, if we're really born again, um, we're going to go to heaven, but we have no benefit from His love uh, while we're here. It's like and I had a similar question yesterday, Richard. 
um, uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, we know God can't hate anything. God is love, but Esau cared so little about God that God's love had no value for him. Jacob, even though Jacob was a con man, even though Jacob wanted to do things his way, he finally got to the place where he surrendered to God. And then the love of God was able to to be set upon him and direct his steps for the rest of his life. And Jacob, of course, at the end of his life, was a man who was revered uh, even by people that normally hated Jews. Good question, Richard. Thank you very much. Here's an anonymous question from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, can you explain the difference from Psalm 1-1 and when Jesus sat down with sinners? I find myself often sitting down with unsaved family members, but I don't share God's word because I believe they already know their sins. But with professing Christians who are not walking with God and are living in sin, I tend to speak up more. However, those professing Christians say they are fine, so what should I do? Um, You know, I get frustrated, um, Anonymous, with... um, professing believers way, way, way more than unbelievers. I don't expect anything from unbelievers, but when somebody says I'm a Christian and they're not walking with God, um, and they usually will respond with, uh, no, I'm fine with God like you suggested, or or even worse, judge not lest you be judged. Don't you know that the Bible says that? And that's very, very frustrating. So what I do is I share the word with professing Christians when I know they're in sin. If they tell me to be quiet, no, I'm fine, then I stop talking. Don't cast your pearls before swine is the principle that Jesus had. And if they're really believers, God is going to chase them and he's going to make their life difficult. It's that simple. So that's the thing that we do with with believers, professing believers. Um, with, with your family, I think you've got it just the opposite way that you're supposed to. Um, we should all sit down with unsaved family members. Psalm 1-1 says, Blessed or happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. The idea there is to be influenced by them. But what you should never stop doing, Anonymous, is telling them the word, giving them the gospel. You should always do it. I know it's uncomfortable with family members. I know there's a likelihood that they'll stop inviting you. They won't want you around them anymore. I know that, hey, this is mom and dad, or this is brother and sister, and you know it's family, and you got to be with family. But if you really love them, you won't be able to shut up about Jesus when you're with them. So it's the unbelievers that always get the gospel. It's the professing Christians that once we're rebuked or or rebuffed when we tell them that, that the way you're living doesn't sit right with God, uh, that's the one that we turn away from. But the unbeliever, we're always telling them the gospel. And if they tell you to stop talking about Jesus, then you just tell them, look, I can't stop talking about Jesus. doesn't matter if they know their sins, if they don't do anything about it, when a remedy for their sins is available, tell them about Jesus. So I hope that distinction between unbelievers and believers is clear. I get so frustrated and anonymous with professing Christians. I've had people who, who who left their marriages and they would come back and say, what are you thinking? You know God didn't want you to do this. You, you're, you're, gonna, you're cut off in fellowship with God. No, I'm fine. Never been closer to God. And I want to scream at them because they're lying. They know they're lying. I know they're lying. Our job is to tell people the truth, whether they're a believer or unbeliever. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is our question from Hinny. Um, how do you explain? I'm sorry, let me try it again. My voice correct. This is from Hinny. How do you explain the Bible being without error? And yet there are so many translations. Um, the translation, all we have to worry about the translation, Hinny, is whether or not it is a uh, uh, an accurate representation of, of the Word of God. Um, Translation, I mean, language is not static. Language changes over and over and over. If you read the King James Version of the Bible, uh, they use words that we don't use any longer in the English language. Uh, Old English words, they just don't use them. So the newer translations aren't changing the meaning. They're just making it 
more readable uh, for the culture uh, in which we live. So um, the Bible is without error. Now, there are some copyist errors and there's uh, um, um, some some numbers that are slightly off. We're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about um, the, the, the intent, the meaning of the Word of God. And so there, there are no contradictions. Um, the original manuscripts were inerrant and infallible. Uh, what we have is so many original or, or so many early manuscripts that we can put them all together and translate them in such a way that we can have full confidence that what we have represents the heart, the letter, and the intent of the original manuscripts. So I, I think, Henny, one of the things that you can do, let me give you a couple of suggestions depending on how deep you want to go. Um, there, there's a, a pretty readable book called uh, um, The Bible Know What You Believe and Why You Believe by a man named Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E. Um, um, Lee Strobel has written a very readable book called The Case for the Bible, um, and you can get that. Uh, there's there's uh, uh, a, a classic by Josh McDowell called uh, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict in, in the newest editions, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And there's a whole um, section about our Bible, how we got it, why we can trust it, and you really need to do that. Don't be worried about the translations. Just find a translation that you're comfortable with, one that you you believe represents the intent of the original authors, and uh, the, the the Lord will will bless your your effort. I promise you that. Um, I, I Henny, I would suggest the 1984 version of the NIV, especially for the New Testament. Uh, but the New King James is is great. Um, um, the the English Standard Version, the ESV, is great. Um, there are some that are even more readable. Uh, the New Living Translation, um, they're, they're dependable translations. So don't get caught up in the words that are different. It's just using different ways to communicate in a language that is more um, um, understandable by the, by, by the people living in the time that we're reading it. Good question. Leticia says, is it possible to have complete victory over sin? Um, we do have complete victory over sin, uh, Leticia. The the problem is that what we don't have is is the the, the destruction, the total destruction of our uh, flesh. We have a sin nature, and we're always going to have that struggle. So our complete victory, our complete victory, will be when we stand with Jesus face to face. But nonetheless, Paul says to the church at Rome, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. In other words, it mastered you at one point, but it no longer does. Why? Because we have the spirit of the living God, the power that raised Christ from the dead living in us. So we can always run away from sin. But even when we fail, we have an advocate with the Father who cleanses us from our sin. So practically speaking, we're always going to have temptation. The, the enemy, the world that we live in, our flesh, my flesh. I won't speak about your flesh, Leticia. My flesh has an insatiable appetite. It is never satisfied. Not once. But when I'm tempted to do something, the power is available to me to say no. I have the free will to say yes, but I have to remember in times like that that I'm free not to sin. I'm never free to sin. And to me, that's complete victory over sin. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. So, yeah, I have complete victory over sin. That doesn't mean I don't sin. It just means that when I do, and I really try hard not to, but when I do, Jesus is eager to forgive, to renew and to restore. So I hope that makes sense, Leticia. Our complete victory is when our sin nature goes. That will happen 
either at the rapture of the church or when we die and we go into the presence of Jesus. Here is a question from Armand. Armando, I'm sorry, I didn't see the last letter. Armando, and he wants to know, what are red-letter Christians? Uh, Armando, typically they're not real Christians at all, but a red-letter Christian is the, the person who says, well, you know, I don't care what Paul says or Peter says or John says or, 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 or Jude says or anybody else. I only care what Jesus said. So the, the references to the letters in red in our red-letter editions of the Bible, the things that Jesus is attributed to, to having said. The problem is those people, Armando, don't understand their Bibles at all. Everything written in our Bible carries equal weight. Now, there are some things that Jesus repeats over and over. There are things that Paul repeats over and over. But everything, every letter, every word is written by God, and they all have equal weight. And so the Christian who says, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, well, so so I'm gonna. I, I think it's okay. Um, that, that's somebody who's really not a born again believer at all. So that's what a red letter Christian is. Uh, the problem is they're really not Christians, Armando. They're they're people trained to find loopholes around their own sin. Should we pay attention to the red letters in our Bible? Of course we should. But we should also because there's equal weight given to the letters in black in our Bibles. Um, Jesus, you remember when he was with his disciples, he said, I have so much more to teach you, so much more to tell you, but now you're not able to bear it. So when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will lead us into all truth. And of course, he's done that not only by uh, us being in possession of the Holy Spirit, but by virtue of the word of God coming down the corridor of, of the ages to us so we can know exactly what God wants for each and every one of us. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Kenneth. He says, I saw a news report where a homeless man was interviewed who said he makes a very comfortable living from the state of California being homeless. How can that be true? And what should a Christian response to that be? Um, You know, Kenneth, nothing in California makes sense. Very little anywhere makes sense these days. But the truth is, We have made it easy for uh, people to live homeless lives, lawless lives. Um, We we no longer insist on them obeying the law. Um, We don't protect normal citizens and businesses. Uh, I've been in California uh, fairly recently, and the numbers of homeless people are absolutely overwhelming. Entire cities have been taken over. Um, and and you're right. You know, um, I, I, let me give you a story really quick, Kenneth. We, we and, and this now goes back three years. We've been able to enjoy Jesus because of the COVID um, crisis in the last uh, two years. So three years ago, uh, we, we have a, a ministry called Joy of Jesus. Thousands of people down at Travis Park, and a large part of those people are homeless. We we give them clothes. We give them medical treatment. We we give them food. Um, uh, it's really a neat time. Um, but I was talking to one of the guys, uh, in the park, one of the homeless guys. And I said, I said, you know, here's my card. If you ever get over the area, come on, come and sit with us. We'll, we'd, we'd love to have you, um, at the church. And, and the guy was really uh, nice. And he said, he said, well, well, let me give you my Facebook page. Now I'm not on Facebook. He was, I said, you're on Facebook. He said, yeah. I said, how'd you get a phone? He goes, well, the city gives us a phone. Why would we do that? Why in the world would we do that? So here's the Christian response should be, a man won't work, he won't eat. At the same time, we understand that you've got some issues. Let us help you with those issues. Let us bring you to Jesus who can take care of those issues for you so that you can go get a job and live a life that's productive, a life that brings honor to the Lord. You know, I think one of the things we miss a lot, Kenneth, in uh, our reading through the Gospels is that Jesus spent a lot of time with homeless people. If you go to the early church in the book of Acts, overwhelmingly the majority of the Christians were homeless because Jews converting to Christianity, they would have been kicked out of their homes. But see, they were given Jesus. They were taught who he was. 
And I think that's the Christian response. Uh, you know, we can always be kind and generous with people that are in right before us. Whoever God brings us, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, but, but, but to enable them to live that life uh, is not loving. It's not being kind at all. It's not being compassionate. I think sometimes we feel like being compassionate is just giving everybody everything instead of giving them what they need for life. And of course, we know what they need, Kenneth, is Jesus. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you, Kenneth. I appreciate it. Here is an anonymous question. Um, Would I share my testimony, please? Anonymous, I'm going to keep this for tomorrow. Maybe I'll do a little bit tomorrow. I don't know what I've got with... uh, I've got five minutes, so I don't have time to do it. I'll, I'll try to do it a little bit tomorrow, and I'm just going to give you the uh, the uh, the short version, anonymous. Um, what I would tell you you can do, you can go to calvarysa.com, and you can, um, I, I think it's right on the front page, Pastor Ron's um, testimony. Uh, and and I, I'll spend a little bit of time tomorrow uh, if we don't have a bunch of phone calls to do it. Here is a question from... Tanya from her mobile app. I know it's Tanya, not Tanya, because she starts out with, hi, Papa. (laughs) Hi, Tanya. Why does the phrase, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, in the book of 1 Kings, uh, repeated over and over, is it just to pay close attention to what is written? No, uh, Tanya, what what this is, uh, all the kings kept records, detailed, very detailed records of of the decisions that, that had to be made, the judgments that were made, uh, anything that was uh, particularly noteworthy. Uh, and so when in the in the Old Testament, when these things are written, um, it, it's just a reference to the record of that king's reign and the things that would happen. Um, you, you remember uh, in the book of Esther, um, when um, uh, Mordecai was was uh, the king couldn't sleep and so he went he went back to his chronicles and read some of his stuff and found out that Mordecai had done something to save his life and uh, and and so he goes to Haman and says well what should we do for a man who who did all of this and Haman thought he was talking about himself and so he said well he should be honored well it turns out to be Mordecai um but but it was just the the king would have his chronicles read to him and it would be mindful of the good things that happened. So that's all they're they're making reference to, um, as is written. Um, um, that's the the history that sort of traveled, the, the the oral tradition that sort of traveled about the reign of the kings. And again, in the Book of Kings, they're just noting that uh, this information is also written in the Book of Kings. Thank you, Tanya. Appreciate it very very much. Let me see if I got time for one more question. Here's Bob and Cindy. Oh, this is a good one. I may have to come back to it tomorrow, too. Bob and Cindy ask, what are the most important elements of raising kids to know Jesus? Uh, Bob and Cindy, by far, by far the most important element is your own personal testimony. Your joy, your peace. Um, your kids need to know that they've got a mom and dad who love Jesus, and they can see that love. They can experience that love and benefit from that love. Nothing is more important. Now, obviously, there's a lot of elements here. Um, having family devotions, um, praying together, um, you and, 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 and your wife, Cindy, um, uh, allowing your children to see the hand of God move. You know, when you've got a, an issue or a problem, whether it's a physical illness or financial problem or, or any other problem, you get the family together and pray about it. And when, when God answers those prayers, then you bring the family back together and show them, all of those things are important. Getting them to church, getting them involved in church. We got a wonderful ministry at our church, Bob and Cindy, called Growing in Servanthood, and, and it's designed specifically to let the kids serve with their adult, with their parents, um, um, so they can they can they can serve Jesus together. Just when I started this program, um, we had a, a, a lady who comes by three or four days a week and has her kids with her, and they're vacuuming the place. They're having a blast 
Well, that's that's really important. But by far the most important is they see with their own eyes your devotion to Jesus Christ and what it means to them. They see a mom and a dad who demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit continually in their lives. They see a mom and a dad who aren't arguing with one another, but a mom and a dad who are praying together, a mom and a dad who are in the Word together. I ought to be able to say to your children, Bob and Cindy, I ought to be able to say, so tell me, mom and dad's favorite book, what is it? They ought to say without hesitation, oh, it's the Bible. When kids see that and then they're benefiting from it, they know they're loved, they know they're protected. They hear about Jesus all the time. They see the joy of Jesus coming from your life. Believe me, those are the kids that when they go out and they face their own temptations, those are the kids that are going to be equipped to deal with the difficulties that that um, kids are going to encounter when they go out into the world on their own. So by far, your example, your witness is by far the most important. Oh, finally got that sneeze out, Bob and Cindy. Thank you for being patient. Don't forget that. Your witness, moms and dads, by far, is is more important and has more influence than anything you can ever say to your kids or any church that you can take them to. So, good, good question. Hey, there is the music we are done for the day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this has been The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. God, God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.